I've become quite lazy, it seems. But we're going to look at verse 5 of Colossians 4, just this one verse. You can read the text as it is projected on the screen above me. You're, of course, free to read in your Bibles as well, which may help look at the context as we listen to these words. But Colossians 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in 10 years from now, I'm probably going to feel very bad for all of you who are here this morning. Why is that? Well, I was looking recently through sermon notes of sermons that I preached 10 years ago, and I immediately felt very bad for the people who had to listen to those sermons because I didn't think they were very good. Who has listened to me preach for more than 10 years? A few of you, most of you have left. (laughs) But I feel bad for you. I always try to improve my preaching, mix it up, change it. I can't assure you that it's getting better. But one of the ways in which my preaching has changed over the years is that increasingly I'm trying to make it more missional. And almost everything I've learned about missional preaching, I've learned from Tim Keller, who this past week passed away, as many of you would know. And one of the key ingredients in missional preaching is avoiding the us-them distinction, where us is the good church, the people who have it together, and them is the bad world out there, the sinners who aren't believers who are messing up in life. And if I look back on sermon notes from previous years, I did a little bit of this where I might say, the world in which we live is consumeristic, but we Christians know that happiness is not acquired by getting things. World bad, church good. Now I'm more inclined to say we are a consumeristic people, but the gospel teaches us to locate happiness in Christ. Do you see the difference? In some ways a minor difference, but in many ways a very significant difference. Missional preaching should avoid this us-them dichotomy, this us-them distinction, and yet we need to recognize that there is an us-them difference. Because the church isn't open to all. In order to be a member of the church, you need to believe certain things. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who sent by the Father four sinners, who died a horrible death on the cross, who was raised from the dead three days later, and so forth. There are things you have to believe in order to be a member of the Christian church. And what is true of the Christian church is true of any community in the world. You can't be a member of the Greenpeace board if you're a climate change denier. You can't be a member of the Gay-Straight Alliance if you hate gays. And you can't be a member of the Christian church if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu 
or an atheist. A fully inclusive community is a myth. A community, in order to be a community, must have boundaries that excludes some. And if a community has no boundaries, it isn't a community. It's the boundaries that define the community. Now, Paul, in this verse, mentions outsiders. So he's thinking in terms of lines that demarcate a community. And we've been seeing how in these few verses from Colossians 4, he is expanding his horizon. And the expanding of his horizon is discernible in the pronouns that he uses because he begins with you, devote yourselves to prayer. He moves to us, pray for us. And now he moves to them, the outsiders, and he's going to talk about how we, on the inside, should relate to those on the outside. And so the only way that we can get a handle on this is by thinking, first of all, in terms of the identity of the insiders and the outsiders. These are our two points. First, the identity of outsiders and insiders, and then secondly, the relation of insiders to outsiders. What exactly is the distinction? And then secondly, what exactly is the relationship? So first of all, the outsiders. Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Who are the outsiders? Well, the very term outsiders in a society that purports to be inclusive sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds demeaning, if not insulting. And what you discover from extra-biblical research is that the Jews, back in the time of the New Testament, used this very word, outsider, in a demeaning way to speak of Gentiles. That should not be a big surprise for those of you who are familiar with the context of the Bible because the Jews had many derogatory terms for Gentiles, some of which are apparent in Scripture itself, namely dogs, that was one of them. You might uh, have encountered the term goyim, which is an innocuous word. It simply means nations or Gentiles, sometimes used by Jews, and frequently, I should say, of Gentiles, but in a derogatory way. I want to assure you this morning that there's nothing demeaning or derogatory in Paul's use of the word outsider. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. How can we understand this term? Well, I think we're helped by imagining scenes from the Bible where we have insiders and we have outsiders. One of them would be the flood and the ark. And John, a moment ago, read from this account of the flood, which you find in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. But inside the ark, there is a family of individuals who are safe and warm and fed and alive. And outside the ark, you have people who are in danger or peril, if not dead. No matter how high you could climb any particular mountain, your life was in peril. You were in danger. Nobody outside the ark survived. And so in terms of the story of the flood, inside means alive and outside means dead. 
Another scene that we can imagine is a city of refuge. We read about cities of refuge in the Bible, in the law of Moses. City, cities of refuge were, in fact, prescribed by the law of Moses to protect innocent people from unjust punishment. Now, when I was in Brazil recently, I discovered that there's a lot of vigilante uh, justice in Brazil, where if your neighbor thinks you killed his dog, your neighbor will kill your dog, and nobody blinks an eye. There's a legitimacy to vigilante justice in Brazil, but what protection is there for those who are wrongly accused? Well, in Bible times, if you killed someone, the victim's family could exact justice by killing you, and the one that the family designated to kill you was called the avenger. But what if you killed someone inadvertently? What if you killed someone accidentally? What if you are not responsible in any way for the crime? You're simply not guilty. Where could you go? Well, in the Bible, there were throughout the great Israelite landscape, prescribed by the law of Moses, cities of refuge where those who were innocent could run and be protected and avengers would not be permitted in. Inside the city there is safety and life, and outside the city there is danger and death. We can imagine another scene, another scene from Scripture. What about a flock or sheep in a sheep pen? In ancient Israel, the sheep would, during the day, graze in the, in the pastures, but at night the shepherds would take the sheep into a sheep pen, a walled enclosure that often had thorns on top to keep predators out. There would be just one doorway into the sheep pen, and a guardian would be stationed there to keep his eye on predators and intruders. Inside the sheep pen, there was safety and warmth, and outside the sheep pen, there was danger and cold. Inside out. We can think, lastly, of a banquet hall. Jesus uh, often depicted the kingdom of God in terms of a banquet. Imagine a banquet hall illumined by chandeliers with a massive table with lots of food and wine, and around the table there's music and dancing and festivity. Inside the banquet hall there is nourishment and provision and joy, and outside the banquet hall there is darkness and melancholy. So if you were outside the ark, you were threatened by floodwaters. If you were outside the city of refuge, you were threatened by the avenger. If you were outside the sheep pen, you were threatened by a predator. And if you were outside the banquet hall, you were deprived of food and festivity. Outsider in all of these instances is not a demeaning word. It's not a derogatory term. It's a recognition, in fact, of the plight of people who are not inside. There could even be uh, a sense of pity and concern for those who are outside. Well, then who are the insiders? Well, if you are inside the ark, you are safe from the floodwaters. If you are inside the city of refuge, you are safe from the avenger. If you are inside the sheep pen, you are safe from the predator. If you're inside the banquet hall, you have food and joy and festivity and friends. 
Inside is a place of safety, of gladness. Inside is a place where things are as they should be. Now you ask, where in the world can we find a place like this? Where in the world can we find a place where we are safe? People talk today about safe spaces, don't they? Where can we find a safe space, a safe place where we can enjoy each other's company, where we can experience provision and nourishment? Well, the Bible's answer is the church. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Europe or perhaps places outside of Europe where you might find a medieval cathedral, but Medieval cathedrals are always constructed out of massive walls that are sometimes more than a meter in dimension. And apparently, the, the thickness of a medieval, of the wall of a medieval church is not just architectural, it is to hold the roof up and what else, but apparently the thickness of those walls of medieval churches was also theological. And the idea that was being conveyed by the architects is that the church is a safe place. It is a fortress. It has these thick walls to protect you from outside danger. Now, that's, of course, a reference to the church as building. But you and I know this morning that when the Bible talks about the church, it's I don't know if it's ever talking about the building. It might be in one or two places, but almost always it's talking about the people that make up the church. The church is the house of God, reference people. The church is the body of Christ, reference people. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, reference people. But it's the arena, isn't it? Where the good news of Jesus is preached, the good news of salvation, forgiveness for your sins, renewal, restoration. It's the place, isn't it, where the sacraments are administered, where discipline is exercised, where fellowship is enjoyed, where you can grow in faith, love, and hope. It is the place where you meet Jesus who forgives you, who renews you, who strengthens you, who equips you, who provides you grace sufficient for life. It is this realm of life and nourishment. Insiders are therefore those inside the church, but even more pointedly, they are those inside Christ. And that, perhaps you know, is Paul's favorite way of describing Christians. They are those in Christ. And it's a point that needs to be made because sadly, not everyone who is in the church is in Christ. It's a sad reality we have to contend with, which may be true of some people who are here this morning, in the church but not in Christ. Jesus at one point in the Sermon on the Mount says something really startling, really unnerving in fact. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? And I will say, I will say away from me, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers, people who are presumably in the church, did things in the name of Jesus, and yet Jesus didn't recognize them, didn't know them. They're those who are in the church, yet not in Christ, but it's in Christ, especially that we experience the safety about which we're talking, the security, the forgiveness, the renewal, the restoration that Jesus provides so these then are the identities of outsiders and insiders. How are the insiders to relate to outsiders? Paul says, be wise 
and the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. We'll see four ways to do this. Four ways to be wise in relation to outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. The first is to exercise caution. And the second is to lament the situation. Thirdly, remove obstacles. And fourthly, seize opportunities. First, exercise caution. Now, interestingly, this is what you tend to find as the interpretation of Bible scholars years ago, where the outsiders were seen largely as a threatening force. This is what you find in John Calvin, who was a Protestant theologian, one of the first from the 16th century. He envisions the church as a city, not a bad idea. Every resident of the city is a believer And then there are strangers and foreigners outside the city, but we need to be cautious about them, lest you be, Calvin writes, quote, defiled by their pollutions and by little and little become profane. The outsiders there pose a threat. There's the risk of being profaned by them. You find something similar in Matthew Henry. Some of you may be familiar with his very concise commentary in the Bible. There's an abridged version, and there's, of course, a lengthier version. But he's, what is he, late 17th century, early 18th century? A very similar idea. To act wisely in relation to outsiders is to exercise caution because, in some ways, they pose a threat. Matthew Henry writes, be careful in all your conversing with them not to contract any of their customs for evil communications corrupts good manners. We would say bad company, uh, bad company corrupts good manners. Is that, is that the saying? I don't have it written down. Is a bad company corrupts, pardon? Bad company ruins good morals. It's so helpful. It's like people in church are a lifeline. You remember from uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Where you're just stuck. And whenever I venture from my manuscript, I almost always get into trouble because just, I just don't know what I'm talking about. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, there's some legitimacy to that. And initially, when I encountered these interpretations, I thought, oh, that's That's kind of silly of Calvin and and Henry to interpret this text in that way, so negative. But if you read the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, here is what you hear, verses 15 and 16, be very careful. Then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. It's very explicit in Ephesians 5 that the note to be sounded here is a note of caution and that we ought to be careful in our interactions with outsiders that in some sense, at least some people do pose a threat and that there is the potential for us to be seduced by harmful ideas or harmful relationships. You find the idea in Jesus himself because in Matthew 10, he says, I send you out like sheep among wolves very unusual statement if you think about it. I send you out as sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. So be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, first of all, means exercise caution. There is a threat. 
implied in that relationship. Secondly, we lament the situation. Because if the church is in fact the place of safety, of provision, of nourishment, of life, of forgiveness, of renewal, and there are those outside that realm that is lamentable. That's a situation we don't celebrate. And in fact, Jesus is an example here because in Matthew 23, you find Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem and in particular over those who refused to believe in him. And he says at one point, it's toward the end of the chapter, he says, how I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her wing, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were on the outside. I wanted to bring you in the inside, but you were not willing. You refused, and it evokes tears from Jesus, pity, compassion, real concern. You see something similar, don't you, in the book of Acts when Paul goes to Athens in the Areopagus. We read in Acts 17 that Paul was greatly distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. There are those on the outside who need to be brought to the inside, but being on the outside means they're still without Christ and they're without hope. And that's something we lament. We don't only exercise caution, we lament. Thirdly, we remove obstacles. To be wise in relation to outsiders means to remove the obstacles to unbelief. What are the obstacles to unbelief? We are the kind of people we can be. Proud, arrogant, judgmental, hypocritical, People say, oh, I could, never, I could never go to a church. I could never be with those Christians. They're so judgmental. They're so hypocritical. The mission of the church is impaired by the behavior of Christians. We're all at fault here to some degree, aren't we? The mission of the church is impaired by the profanity of Christians. I'm not just thinking of profanity in terms of language. I'm thinking of profanity in terms of life where we live as if we had no regard for Christ. We live as if Christ didn't matter. And such lives give legitimacy to unbelief, and so we need to remove obstacles for um, obstacles to faith in Christ. And then fourthly, lastly, we seize opportunities. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Beneath our English translations is the Greek, which has the language which is apparent in some translations of redeeming the time or buying up the time or purchasing the time. Now, some of you here would know that in the Greek language, there are two important words for time, which are very significant. One is chronos, one is kairos. Chronos refers to chronological time, sequential time, quantitative time, uh, measurable time, time in terms of hours and days. And then there's kairos, which refers to opportune time. Moments and seasons that are ideal for specific purposes, like the time for harvest, a time and a season for something to be done. Well, what is the moment? Because Paul uses the word kairos here. We need to buy up the kairos. We need to use this 
special moment. What is the moment? Well, in terms of world history, we are in the season of Christ, which spans his ascension into heaven and his return from heaven. And it is the season for mission. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans 13. He says, and do this understanding the present time, Greek word kairos. Understand the kairos, the special moment, the opportune time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. These are unique times. This is the final era in world history. There's nothing significant that needs to happen in terms of our redemption other than the return of Jesus. It's the last thing we're waiting for. We're not waiting for him to come. We're not waiting for him to die. We're not waiting for him to rise from the dead. We're not waiting for him to ascend into heaven. We're simply waiting for him to come again, which marks the end. It's the final season And it's a season for mission because Jesus, prior to ascending, said to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in this text, there's a tinge of urgency. Buy up the time. Purchase it quickly. It's going away. You need to use it up. Make the most, our translation says, of every opportunity. It's an interesting translation because in the word opportunity, the English word at least, you have the word port, which is door or gateway. And Paul had just prayed or just summoned us to pray for a door for the gospel, for a door to be opened. And now he is saying we need to walk through the door. Pray for gospel opportunities And when those opportunities present themselves, seize them. Take advantage of them. And I've shared this with you before, and it's probably true in your life as well. If I can go for weeks without really having any opportunities to to share the gospel or to talk about Jesus, but whenever I pray for opportunities, they're all over the place. If If I pray in the morning, Lord, give me opportunities to tell others about Jesus, I almost certainly will, f- will discover opportunities. The opportunities are always there, but if I'm not praying for them, I don't see them. But if I pray for them, I see them. And the key thing is to seize the opportunity, not in a way that demeans people, not in a way that coerces people, in a way that's respectful, in a tactful way, a wise way, a prudent way, but seize the opportunity I indicated last time that some have a special office in the church and they're called to present the gospel. All of us have an office in which we are called to promote the gospel. And promoting the gospel means seizing opportunities to commend Christ to our neighbors. So in order for a community to be a community, it must be exclusive. It must have boundaries And the Christian church is no different. All are welcome. Let's be clear. All are welcome. If you're a Buddhist, please come. If you're a Muslim, please come. If you're an atheist, you're welcome here. Anybody, everybody of whatever background 
is welcome. But the Christian message is not only come as you are, but if you come as you are, you can't stay as you are. And something needs to change, and it's true for all of us. It's true for every single one of us, not just the Buddhist, the atheist, the Muslim. It's true for the Christian. Come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. To be a member of the church, you have to believe certain things. You have to live in a certain way. You have to surrender your life to Christ. You say, it's not going to be my agenda, my ambitions, my way of doing things, my ideals. It's going to be Christ's agenda, his ambition, his way of doing things. We all need to say that. Well, how do we relate to outsiders? I find it so fascinating that Paul has this extraordinary sensitivity to outsiders. And the term outsider appears not just here in Colossians, but elsewhere. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is talking about the qualifications for leaders. And what does he say of those who are going to serve in leadership in the church? They must have a good reputation with outsiders. I on the outsider. Paul says to the Thessalonians, mind your own business, work hard so that you might win the respect of outsiders. The word as it appears in the New Testament is never demeaning, never said in a derogatory fashion. It's always said with a measure of respect, with a measure of concern. We must have the same sensitivity. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Exercise caution. Lament the situation of people who are without hope in the world. Remove obstacles to unbelief. Seize opportunities to promote the gospel and to commend Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we enjoy all these good things, who is the rock cleft for us, who is the ark in which we are saved from the floodwaters of your judgment, who is the city of refuge in whom we experience safety. And we pray that we would run to Christ, find ourselves in Christ, rest and rely on Christ, and then learn to relate to those who are outside of Christ in ways that are wise and that ultimately might be winsome so that those who are on the outside might be brought into the inside because of the allure that Christ has through our lives. We, of course, are ill-equipped for the task, but you are gracious, and we pray for your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.